Hello and welcome to Heartland History, the official podcast of the Midwestern History Association. I am Camden Bird and I am joined by my friend, the ingenious, you know, illustrious Ramya Swayamprakash. Ramya, how are you doing today? Uh, still reeling under the adjectives that you just used because, uh, yeah. <laughs> a massive imposter syndrome as a woman of color in academia so all well earned Ramya all well <laughs> earned um well we have we've got a good episode today yes yeah I think it'll I think the book and the episode help us rethink some things about places that we might take for granted um I know the first time that I went to Chicago I did not think of it as a swamp um mm-hmm. Uh, but that was also before I was a historian of the Midwest. But anyway, um, <laughs> I think it'll, yeah, I think, I think the conversation that we have, we have, and we had, I mean, we, we're never going to record a podcast late at night after this episode, but, um, yes. but yes, for the listeners, that- for the listeners, I mean, this was a <laughs> level of commitment to this podcast <clears throat> production, uh, where we recorded at like 9 PM, um, it, it was choice. It was a choice we made, but the uh, episode is, I think, better for our commitment to historical scholarship. Indeed, indeed. Uh, you know, listeners might also want to uh, listen more carefully to to discern how tired all three of us are. Um, <laughs> yes. Oh, maybe and maybe we should say uh, now we're getting ahead of ourselves. We, we were talking to uh, John Nelson who is an assistant Mm -hmm. professor of early North American history at Texas Tech University. He teaches a range of courses there, including United States history, colonial America, the American West, the Atlantic world, and Native American history. Uh, He has published work in a variety of venues, including the Michigan Historical Review. And actually, his uh, 2021 article in the William & Mary Quarterly won uh, recently the Dorothy Schweider Prize for Best Article in Midwestern History from uh, the Midwestern History Association. So he is... um, closely uh, affiliated with our our group here. So um, we talked to him about his book, mm-hmm. Muddy Ground, Native Peoples, Chicago's Portage, and the Transformation of a Continent, which was recently published by the University of North Carolina Press. I guess I should ask you, Camden, what were your quick quick or not so quick takeaways from the book? Like what, what struck you about the book and the conversation? Both of us are sort of into environmental history. So I think like uh, for us, this was, you know, a little bit of a selfish pick because I think it was a great conversation about how um, landscapes are viewed, valued and changed over time. I think what's always important um, when we think about landscape, both present and past, is acknowledging how different groups create meaning out of what appears to be the same space and how those contests for that space actually reveals a great deal about sort of the 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 many meanings of environment. I think that's a theme that we should always strive to look for in the past, but also reminds us in the present how environments, nature, space um, are a point of contestation. If we think about the Midwest, broadly speaking, there's often an an impulse to create sort of one definition, meaning of the Midwest. And I think if we take an argument um, like Nelson's and expand it, we see that the Midwest can potentially be, you know, a million different meanings, right? Mm -hmm. And based on people's experiences, their cultural uh, meanings uh, and their socio and economic relationships to space. And I think a book like this sort of brings us into that 
very local sense, but is a great lesson for us to hold on to going forward. Yeah. And I think, you know, in thinking about meanings of places, um, also just reconnecting places to their past because mm-hmm. so much of, mm-hmm. you know, um, how we think of American cities, I think a lot, oftentimes American cities are so, so taken away from, from their bases and their <clears throat> origins. Right. Um, and, you know, nature's metropolis will remain the defining book on Chicago's development. Um, but I think this is a great prequel to mm-hmm. nature's metropolis and, you know, thinking about what it means to impose infrastructure mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. you know, as, as bland as infrastructure is always seen, how it, ha- how it is a political sort of act. Right. And it's the blandest political act because you just write mm-hmm. an appropriations bill and you say, we're going to dredge or we're going to create a canal and that's it. And suddenly a portage is gone and, you've just sort of vacuum sealed hundreds of years of history mm-hmm. and built all over it. And today nobody would think that there was a portage at Chicago. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then it's so easy to then also not have people connected to these places show up in these places. Right. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, I thought those kinds of conversations and those kinds of thoughts that I had while reading the book were interesting. Let's make infrastructure, uh, historically compelling again. That's what that's what the takeaway is here. Yes, make make infrastructure great again. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, anything else? The world is still turning. Is still burning. Um, yes, yes, yes. Uh, but in a couple of months, I guess the Midwest Midwestern Historical Association Association I can speak um, will give out its call for papers. Uh, if you're so inclined, you should consider joining us in Grand Rapids because fall is here, which means that we shall all go and hibernate. (laughs) Hibernation starts. Yes. And lastly, um, you know, a reminder, you're about to hear it. Uh, We are graced with the music of the band Vansire from Rochester, Minnesota. Otherwise, I think that's it, Ramya. Shall we continue on to the episode? Yes, please. Welcome to the pod, Johnny, and thank you for speaking with us. Um, But your book, Muddy Ground, uh, is a book that argues for local history. Uh, You write about Chicago, arguably a place that's been written about a lot. Could you walk us through how you landed on the topic and also perhaps the excitement as well as the challenges of working on a place that, you know, people might um, be easily aware of, but not always know enough about? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's it's uh, a great question, right? Uh, I am, yeah, an absolute advocate for for local history uh, and and regional history still mattering. I know we are in the global turn and the transnational turn and all of those exciting, broad sweeping uh, fields of history, but um, I still think that the local is key because it helps us understand kind of these interpersonal interactions that really were key, especially when it comes to things like Native American and European contact. Um, And if you want to start talking environment, you really do have to get fine grained um, down to the the local level to to understand that. Right. And so 
Uh, I think I'll always be an advocate for local personal type histories. Um, uh, and, uh, and Chicago was no different in early America, right? So we think of it as this big metropolitan place now, but, you know, it starts off as this small crossroads in Native America. And, and that's what drew me to it. And I, I will say I didn't start the project as a Chicago specific project that actually um, came about later. So I was really interested in the idea of these portages, right? These places where native people who had perfected this indigenous technology of lightweight birch bark canoes could carry their watercraft from one body of water to the next. Right. And and so I was thinking about things in terms of like networks of mobility and freshwater maritime uh, movement. And Chicago just happened to be one node in this much bigger, broader system of indigenous waterborne travel. Um, but it made sense to focus on one specific place to kind of make sense of all of this movement. Right. I think if I would have tried to write a history of uh, portage networks that talked about Niagara and talked about Sault Ste. Marie and talked about um, the, the, you know, Grand Portage in, in Lake Superior, that would have been very scrambled very quick and it would have been hard for readers to follow. But if I could zoom in on one particular portage, and this happens to be a very significant spot uh, in this network, then we could make sense of all that mobility, all that movement, all that interaction from one key vantage point. Uh, and so that's kind of how I framed the Chicago approach here. Um, so not Chicago for Chicago's sake necessarily, but Chicago as a window into understanding these Great Lakes uh, waterborne networks that native people perfected in the pre-contact era and that Europeans then learned and exploited and tried to manipulate when, when we get to the kind of colonial era. Um, and of course, we know the, the urban history of Chicago, right? You talk about uh, Chicago as being a heavily written about place. That's absolutely true. In some ways, hopefully that's an appealing element to the book because people will already know, okay, where are we talking about? We're talking about Chicago, right? They know why that matters in maybe the 19th or 20th century. But what I'm saying, hopefully in this book is there's a whole deeper indigenous history to this place, right? This is an, an indigenous site long before it's a settler city. It's a significant place. It doesn't just rise up from the mud. There is a deep indigenous past that we can can dig out of this um, of, of this place. Yeah, I, I think that's really important. And as a podcast focused on the you know the history of the Midwest, like we are a regionally focused podcast. We're you yeah. know we're thinking about place consciously, and sure. your your book does do a great job of arguing as you've just outlined, right? Like that local histories are like really important to understand wider regional, mm -hmm. even continental or international, you know, global histories as well, right? You write quote. Um, early America was indeed vast, but the crucial interactions between people groups and their environments that shaped the continent's history took place at intimate localities like Chicago's Muddy Portage. Only by concentrating on shifting dynamics at such localized level can historians ever hope to make sense of the wider transformations that shaped North America's human and non-human history from early contact into our modern era. And end quote. And I'm just curious if we could talk a little bit more about that. Like what makes Chicago's history, you know, what does Chicago's history reveal to us? And in doing so, like how do these localized studies um, broaden our understanding of the region? 
Yeah, um, that's a thanks for quoting me. That's a uh, um, it's a great question uh, as well. And I think you know, in this way, Chicago works as a case study, and I would say the Midwest, in a way, works as a case study for larger processes that we see playing out at the continental level between incoming Europeans who would dominate the landscape and native people who are at sometimes collaborating and and other times resisting this kind of um, overarching imperial force. Um, you talk about vast early America, right? And this is the the, the hashtag um, yeah. <laughs> that is that is big in early American circles these days. Um, and I, I like, I don't want to say that I don't like vast early America. Obviously, Chicago fits into this vaster, that's a word, right? This vast <laughs> story of early America. Um, and we're not just talking about Boston or Jamestown or... Um, or Mexico City anymore. We're talking about deep in the interior, indigenous places, continental histories. And I think that's great. But I think if we zoom out too far uh, and we just talk about vast, or we just talk about the Atlantic world, or we just talk about the global, right? We risk losing kind of the tangible connections to place that, that Tell us why history matters, right? Um, not just on grand global scales, but to individual and everyday people in all parts of this American continent, right? And I think that looking at Chicago is a great example of this, right? Because Chicago gives us a way to recover a local and regional indigenous past that we might miss if we zoom out too far, right? And back to that case study argument, Chicago's a great lens for seeing how contact and colonization play out at a very localized level, but it's in a way that helps us understand these bigger processes at a, at a national or continental level, right? So I, I always remember the old Dan Richter quote that, that like so many books about early American indigenous relations are kind of dot, 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 and then the Americans show up, mm. game over. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that that explanation was always bouncing around in my head where you've got kind of um, the Americans come in, indigenous relations fall apart. And before you know, it, we have kind of an American empire dominating native people, dispossession, removal, etc. Without any explanation as to like, how did they actually do this? And I think at Chicago, we get to see this in kind of fine grained detail that we have kind of a series of processes that play out, right? We have kind of indigenous encounter during the early French period. We have these colonial clashes during the 18th century. We have eventually the American state coming in and kind of enacting environmental degradation through infrastructure projects, right? And then eventually we end up with this settler hegemony. And we kind of know how this plays out at Chicago if we zoom in that closely. And it's what plays out across the Midwest, right? So Chicago, again, just acts as kind of a case study to understand how indigenous people resist and then lose their lands in Ohio, in Indiana, in Michigan, in Illinois, across this region. And I would say, you know, you could kind of play on themes of this to really understand even broader than that. Um, so I don't know if that answers the whole question, uh, but I think that's why I think Chicago is a valuable lens to this. It's not just, you know, an anomaly in this kind of Midwestern borderland. It's really a case study for understanding the devices 
of, of conquest and how the American state goes about subduing these indigenous places across the continent uh, through a series of, of basically kind of uh, environmental takeovers as much as, as military takeovers. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Throughout your book, there's a keen eye on tracking environmental transformations along with social and political events. It's, of course, an intentional and astute eye that so adeptly shows how Chicago was the, quote, amphibious center of native power, end quote, as you frame it. Um, I wonder if you could characterize your book as an indigenous environmental history. I think in the Midwest, this is particularly important because much of the environmental histories of the Midwest, especially those around uh, urban areas, have been analyzed, you know, in terms of their industrial and industrial development as well as impact on the hinterlands. Yeah, I, I like that, uh, an indigenous environmental history. I say sure, right? I think this is an indigenous environmental history in a way. And it's also a, um, I, I think you're right to point out that in the Midwest, for sure, environmental histories tend to be kind of in the Anthropocene, right? In the industrial era forward. Um, and so I like to think of this as kind of a pre-industrial environmental history of, of the Great Lakes or the Midwest, right? Um, looking at how indigenous people understood and used in ecological resources at places like Chicago, understood landscapes and, and river, uh, river courses and lake geography uh, like they did at Chicago. Uh, so I think inv- indigenous environmental history absolutely works for that. I also think, you know, it's, a, it's an indigenous counter to what we think of when we think of kind of more traditional Atlantic and maritime history, right? This is an indigenous freshwater network of waterborne mobility, just like we see, you know, um, Atlantic networks of mobility in in kind of the saltwater frontier, so to speak. Um, and so, and, and I would argue nowhere is indigenous waterborne um, power more noticeable and more significant in the history than in the Great Lakes itself, right? Um, Chicago, again, is just a node in this story for waterborne indigenous power in a freshwater system. Um, and, of course, it ties back to the, the ecological knowledge that, and the environmental knowledge that lets these indigenous mariners really harness the kind of geopolitical power, the environmental power of this landscape. And it's a super unique environment in world history, right? The, the Great Lakes are like nothing else that Europeans encounter in other parts of the world. And they're, they're really like nothing else even in, in the American context. Um, and so tracking how that environment influences indigenous power in the region, and then those environmental changes um, in this kind of unique environment of the Great Lakes and the Prairie Parklands of Illinois, I think is, is really kind of compelling history. Um, and there are other people doing this, right? I'm not going to say that, that Muddy Ground is the only book that is doing this. Uh, Bob Morrissey from Illinois just came out with another great book looking at right the, the tall grass prairies of Illinois as kind of a unique indigenous ecology um, in the pre-industrial era. And so I think there's momentum building for appreciating the Great Lakes mm-hmm. and the Midwest as this kind of crucial 
a series of environments that native people really perfect and understand and harness for their own power um, before Europeans come in and conquer it or wreck it or, or all of those things that happen in the industrial era, right? Uh, so I think that's absolutely right, kind of an indigenous environmental story for sure. Yeah, I agree. And, and, and that's not to say, I mean, like, the, you know, part of this book is also a story of, you know, how European powers sought, sought to control the Absolutely. Chicago landscape as well, right? Like they recognize yes. the importance of the site as a critical spot for geopolitical power. And though this is like, you know, 70% of your book, could you briefly outline how the <laughs> French, how the French and British saw this landscape and, and how that conflicted with indigenous ways of knowing uh, the landscape. What about this, like watery portage, the the, the ecotone, the borderland? Yes. What, what made this so desirable? Yeah. Um, so I think that the really fascinating thing about these the Great Lakes and the portages that connect them um, is that it is just enough like a maritime empire that the French and the British can imagine themselves ruling over it. Right. So so the vast prairie parklands of Illinois or the Great Plains, that's too much for the for the European mind to contemplate controlling in the 17th and 18th centuries. But when they look at a map of the Great Lakes and they see these connection points and they see these straits and they see these portages, these carrying places, they think they see something that's similar to the Mediterranean or the Caribbean, right? And they, they make explicit connections to these other places that they have been able to build empires in. And they assume that controlling places like Chicago, right, the key to the continent um, that they sometimes call it, or, um, uh, you know, Anthony Wayne refers to it as like a door that's just a little too wide to close. Um, and, and that's how they envision it, right? This is a Gibraltar type situation for these European empires and empire builders. And so they Chicago allows them to dream of empire. And yet when they get there and they try to build empire on this very muddy, shaky ground of Chicago, it usually ends up blowing up in their face, right? So the French try it first um, and it very uh, kind of tragically ends in the Fox Wars, right? Um, and and kind of their vision of an indigenous alliance system and, and a French maritime empire in the Great Lakes never quite reaches what they hoped it would. Uh, by the 1740s, they basically have given up on Chicago uh, and they have left it as this, this route of smugglers and uh, courier de bois and, and kind of uh, renegade traders and, and Native Americans that won't kind of join the alliance or won't come in to French forts. Um, the British, it's even uh, kind of, shorter lived their vision of this empire, right? So so they briefly claim this region in the 1760s. They lose it by the 1780s, uh, thanks to the American Revolution. And they never really get a grasp on a place like Chicago because they they can't master the environment of, of this wetland, but they also can't master kind of the political geography of Great Lakes indigenous peoples. And so between the French and the British, we kind of see... Um, a try and fail and another try and fail from European empires at, at harnessing Chicago's geographic potential 
to connect these waterborne regions of, of the continent. Um, and, and, and that is a story of, you know, failed European empire at the end mm. of the day. It's a story of local people, in most cases in, in this context, native people, right, kind of resisting that imperial reach and, and the environment also stymieing these imperial visions of empire at a place like Chicago. Yeah, and, and, and you do note even um, that this does shift a little bit. And, and American policymaking sort of shifts this, and particularly after the War of 1812, right? Yes. You know, in yep. what ways did that war mark a turn in, a, in American imperial policy, and, and how did that start to shape Chicago going forward into the 19th century? Yeah, I think this is that's a, a really good question. It's it's probably one of the things I found most surprising when I did the research for this book, um, because you know going into it, right, that the American story is going to be different than the French and the British stories before it. The French and the British don't ever control Chicago, and they they lose control of it before they even really establish themselves there. With the Americans, of course, we know how the story ends. We know of the metropolis that, that rises up here and kind of the American settler uh, empire that spreads across the continent by the, the mid-19th century. And so you know it's going to be different. But what I found when I really started reading the sources is that the first era of American empire in Chicago, right, what I would kind of categorize as kind of the revolutionary period mm-hmm. until the War of 1812 it looks very much like the French and the British, right? Um, And people like Anthony Wayne or Henry Knox or Arthur St. Clair, these kind of early leaders of the Northwest Territory, these early military um, personnel that are are making calls on the frontier, they think of themselves as a successor state to the French and the British, right? And they are very much looking at French and British models for empire in the Great Lakes and saying, well, they may not have done it right, but we're going to we're going to just do what they did, but we'll do it better. Right. Mm -hmm. And so Anthony Wayne looks at old French maps before uh, the Greenville Treaty to decide where he's going to try to get Indian lands to build forts. Right. Because if the French build forts there, well, clearly that's important geography and that's where the American forts should be, too. Right. So the Americans come at it with a very similar mindset in this early period and and you know they they view this as kind of their own imperial fringe this is not the settler colonial context of the ohio river valley this is a far-flung outpost um you know at the very edges of american claims and so they're just trying to control this space they're trying to control movement through the chicago portage by building a fort there in the early 1800s um, they're not necessarily intent on settlement yet, and they are trying to control the Great Lakes maritime frontier in many of the same ways that the French and the British did before them. It, of course, they end up getting a kind of their nose bloodied in this this strategy with the War of 1812 when the local indigenous population of Anishinaabe attack the garrison as they retreat, uh, right, and and basically burn the fort to the ground and take all the supplies for themselves and disperse the captives among Potawatomi villages, Anishinaabe towns up and down the Illinois River Valley. Um, And so when the Americans come back after the War of 1812, it's with a different vision and it's a different model of empire. It's no longer going to be 
French and British models. Instead, what we have is this, you know, settler migration, but also kind of an investment in infrastructure, in bureaucracy, in statecraft, in ways that we didn't see before. And a a certain commitment to investment from the state that was just not there in the French period, not there in the British period, and not there in the early American period either. To me, your book moves from statecraft to periphery, to survivance, to dispossession through infrastructure creation and, you know, in successive chapters. Mm -hmm. As a scholar, let's go with that, uh, of infrastructure, I found the last chapter especially compelling. The loss of the portage was so swift and banal, almost because it was an infrastructural and bureaucratic response, or at least couched as one. And, you know, so when it was the totalizing force of a vengeful settler state, right, um, that's how it came about. Now, I wonder if you might be able to speak a little more about that, the banality of mm. an infrastructural project, you know, just because to me, when I was reading the book, I was like, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And then it was like, okay. Then. Um, so the move from, you know, lived knowledge to one on maps and surveys especially is important because I think that sort of makes a shift into the banal so much easier or convenient, I guess. Um, and so, and I observe this in my research as well. So I'm just curious to see how you read it, you know, sort of how the banal comes about. Yes, um, that's, a, that's a really good question. And I, I like your statecraft to periphery, to survivance, to dispossession. I think that's a good trajectory to think about the book's successive uh, parts. Um, and we get to the end, right? And you say chapter five, right? It's kind of this moment where, okay, how are the Americans actually going to go about conquering this space, right? We kind of, again, know how this story ends. Um, if we know early American history, we know that Chicago becomes an American city. How does it get wrested away from local indigenous Anishinaabe people? And how does it suddenly become a, a rising American city? It's through infrastructure, which is kind of right um, an anticlimactic answer, but it's absolutely this. Uh, you call it banal, and and I think that's right. It's kind of the everyday, um, slow churning of state building that it that kind of radically alters the landscape in a physical way to strip the Anishinaabe people of their power in Chicago. So much of the indigenous power at this place had always been about controlling movement through the portage, right? And the advantages that indigenous people like the Anishinaabe have there are they understand the landscape, they understand the system of movement, right? So they build the birch bark canoes. They exchange those canoes at Chicago. Mm-hmm. They facilitate movement through this, this carrying place, right? And they know how to live in the local environment that is both prairie and wetlands and Great Lake all in one. And they can take full advantage of that um, through their, their mixed political economy and ecology. Um, what happens by the time we get to the 1820s and 30s is that the Americans don't beat the Anishinaabe at, Anishinaabe at controlling the portage. They don't beat the Anishinaabe at their own game. They bring in enough man, manpower and engineers and, and money to 
swap the game board out, right? Um, and this is the analogy I use, I think, in the book, right? Is that they they don't they don't play the game the same way anymore. They just pull the board out from under the Anishinaabe who had mastered this geography and mastered the power of this space. And that's the kind of deflating blow that strips the Anishinaabe of their political power, their ecological power, and and their their control of mobility in this space. And now all of a sudden you have both local, state, and also federal officials and leaders calling the shots at Chicago rather than local headmen who were facilitating movement through the portage up until that point, right? Because once you dig a canal, which is what eventually happens, right? After a lot of fits and starts in the 1830s, they dig the the Michigan-Illinois Canal and they render the portage irrelevant because now European shipping can finally go from Lake Michigan to the Mississippi drainage without indigenous brokers, right? And and they they kind of circumvent the indigenous portage. They they really they bury it in a canal and now Native people no longer have that collateral and settlers are going to come in and, and kind of call the shots going forward. Um, before we move on to the next question. Yes. I had a quick thing. Uh, I know it's late. But um, <laughs> I, so what I really appreciate about sort of the way you talk about infrastructure is sort of, and this this is something I've been thinking about a lot. But the ways in which a lot of indigenous knowledge about landscape, waterscape is delegitimized by yes. the creation of the topographical survey, the lake survey, right? And especially in the Great Lakes, there is this other sort of, I think, background movement, especially after the War of 1812, of also enforcing and enlarging the American nation, right? So um, what does that mean for the ways in which Americans see this vis-a-vis what's happening in, say, you know, Port York, like what's happening in Toronto, right? Um, And so there's, I think that we don't often think about that. And I've been thinking a lot, especially after reading a book about this stuff. The the thing that excites me is how you sort of use local history, right? Um, Because I could get onto a lot of dredging projects across the Great Lakes and Mm -hmm. Mm Parkinson's. So... um, so I like like local history as an entry point, but also just how much gets lost when that when the when indigenous knowledge is delegitimized through like Western ideas of science and you know mapping, right? What is mapped and what's not? Mm-hmm. Uh, side comment. Um, but so as an American city, then uh, Chicago seems almost fictional, right? Um, and it's a sinking one at that, as you point out, <laughs> right? Um, as someone who teaches on the other side of the lake, um, linking carp to everything else, uh, it's often a challenge for me because the Great Lakes are, you know, caught up in this trope of abundance. And so I wonder if you might want to speak to that, the fiction of the city and the lake that sustained it. But now it's the same lake that's eating at it, which is, I guess, ironically also a fiction in some senses. But yeah. But... Yeah, yeah. Um... Well, we have this this vision of Chicago as, as basically rising up from the mud, right? Um, that's kind of the old booster rhetoric of this place, that it, mm-hmm. it's a city that emerges out of nowhere. By the end of the, the century, 
it has not only risen up from the mud, it's also risen up from the ashes of a fire, right? Mm-hmm. And you just can't keep this second city down. Um, and, and that is kind of the uh, Americana mythos around Chicago. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, if we dig deeper into this story and we dig beyond that mythology, we realize that actually this is a deeply significant and, and, and you know, in deep time, this is an indigenous place, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's not that it came up from the mud. It's not that it's unexpected that this is a significant place. This was always a significant place. Mm-hmm. It's just the people who have made it significant have changed by the 19th century. Um, so I think in that way, it does push back against some of that fiction around Chicago as Chicago. Um, but then you also ask about about the Great Lakes, right? And this, this idea of the abundance of the Great Lakes. And I think we're starting to see writers and historians think differently about that abundance, right? There's been some good work done on um, the pollution of the Great Lakes now. Um, I'm thinking of Lake Superior, um, right? But also, you know, like Dan Egan's book about the kind of waning abundance of the Great Lakes and all of these environmental and human-induced threats to Uh Great Lakes ecosystems. Uh, At the end of the day, right, Great Lakes, the Great Lakes are ecosystems that are just as fragile as any other part of the continent. Um, They're going to be threatened by the same global warming systems, by the same pollutants, by the same industrialization, by the same over-harvesting of things, uh, and by the same invasive species as anywhere else. And uh, I think it's it's deeply ironic, right? You, you bring up the carp. It is deeply ironic <laughs> that the Great Lakes' biggest threat from a kind of biological standpoint is via the canal mm-hmm. that ruined the portage in the first place, yeah, right? Yeah. So those connection points that bridged the gap between the Mississippi drainage and the Great Lakes now stand to threaten the Great Lakes environmentally in mm-hmm. a way that we really don't understand or can't predict until it happens, God forbid, right? Mm-hmm. That these you know invasive carp that are in the Illinois River break through that barrier at the Chicago River and get into the Lake Michigan and ruin the the boating industry, the fishing industry. Um, this has implications for indigenous people that still live in the Great Lakes and rely on native species as part of their fisheries take for the year, right? Whitefish and lake trout populations will theoretically be impacted mm-hmm. when carp enter um, Lake Michigan. And so all that to say that all of this connection points and all of this technolo- technological advancement and all of this so-called progress that began as rhetoric in the 1830s in Chicago now is kind of the death knell or, or at least a threat to Great Lakes abundance um, and, and kind of the, the environmental health of this region as a whole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really sort of a sad poetry to that, I guess. Yes. <laughs> there is. There is. I, I'll say that, like, I, yeah, I, I was worried when this, when I wrote this book that people wouldn't know what a portage was, right? Like, um, I put the definition right there as a, as, as a, in, in the intro to make sure people knew, because I was worried that it's, it's something that is so, out of our mindset and, and we, it's so hard to conceptualize 
the idea of carrying boats from one water body to the next. And yet this was so ubiquitous in the logic of early America that it, it, it reminds us just how detached we are from that geographic reality now. Um, mm -hmm. and, and the fact that, you know, the portage is not really even there anymore uh, after all of the canal projects and industrialization that's, you know, another way that we're really just detached from this history uh, and this space. Yeah. yeah. And I'm glad you, I mean, I, I would love to have at some point a class that sort of reads your book uh, alongside uh, Cronin's just because mm -hmm. there were parts of like the way Cronin talks about the meat industry and yes. the river and sort of mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the markets and the railroads. I was like, wait, this is like, that's what kept going on in my head when I was reading your mm, book. And right. I, like, you know, there's already within like 50, 60 years of when you end uh, yeah. the, the book, um, Chicago, yeah. there's just no memory. Yes, yeah. right? no, exactly. They've um, totally rewritten the landscape, right, by that point. Um, uh, yeah, and and by then you're also like sowing the seeds of the city itself sinking, right? Like, yes, yep. Right. Mm. So now whether you close up the canal or not is in in some sense is secondary because the lake is anyways coming for the city. Mm. So right. once it does and it you know goes back, then the carp anyway will have a way to come in. Uh huh. Right. Yeah, and if it's not the carp, it's something else, right? It's something like, else. You've unleashed all of these kind of unforeseen environmental consequences as soon as you start messing with. The, the geography of that place. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. This is why I'm asking the aliens to just come. But just <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm curious, uh, and I say this loaded. I mean, I, I've, we've now done two episodes for this this academic year, and both of them have like wildly informed. I'm currently teaching Illinois history, and oh. actually, I was reading your book while I was talking about um, the the transition of. Uh, British American diplomacy. And so like, it actually like really adjusted the way I taught that those classes. So I, I appreciate you for writing, awesome. you know, this book, it was great. Yeah. I, I assure the listeners, I am not just using this podcast as a vehicle for me to redesign my syllabus. I swear. <laughs> That's always a good reason though, for a new book. Yeah. yeah. But I'm curious for the listeners who aren't teaching Illinois history. This semester, <laughs> um, you know, what are you hoping that the, what is the takeaway of this book? You know, how does it shift our understanding of Chicago, of indigenous environmental histories of the yes. Great Lakes region? Like, you know, what's the takeaway here? Um, yeah, so I think there's there's kind of twofold takeaways, right? Um, I think on one hand, I hope that this book remerges to things we always learn about in in the early republic, right? In early American history, we always learn about Indian removal, right? Indigenous dispossession. We always learn about infrastructure or what they called internal improvements mm -hmm. at the time. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to fuse those things back together because at places like Chicago, they're absolutely connected, right? Mm -hmm. And one reinforces the other and vice versa. So indigenous people weren't leaving Chicago while they still had control of the portage and of the landscape, right? Um, they have the upper hand environmentally and geographically speaking. They control mobility in this site at least until the 1820s. And it's not until these infrastructure projects where they are draining the wet prairies and draining the wetlands and then digging this canal and building these roads and eventually building railroads, right? That's when the power shifts. And that's when the U.S. settler state has enough clout to 
buy the Potawatomi lands and force them west of the Mississippi. So from a kind of a U.S. history survey standpoint, Mm -hmm. I would like the survey to rethink how it teaches internal improvements, right? The, the, um, you know, the industrial revolution, the, the transportation revolution, all of that market revolution stuff that we know about canals and roads and, and all that, and connect it to this indigenous dispossession that is happening as a piece of it, right? Mm-hmm. And as a connected uh, kind of two-pronged conquest that goes on, not just at Chicago, but also, you know, across the Midwest, wherever these canal projects pop up, wherever these swamp drainages pop up. Uh, but I would argue, you know, new books like Claudio Sant's Unworthy Republic have pointed to this in mm-hmm. the South as well, right? Where infrastructure leads to infamous Indian removal, like the Trail of Tears, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then on another lens, right? So that's that's the one takeaway that I think is key here. The other one is rethinking um, what some indigenous scholars now call like environmental sovereignty, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or or a more familiar term might be environmental justice. And we think about these terms in 21st century um, discourse, but we don't think about them in early America. And really... We should be thinking about the roots of environmental justice and environmental sovereignty at the moment when it is stripped from these Anishinaabe people in Chicago. At the moment, it's stripped from indigenous people that maintain environmental sovereignty, right? Because they control these environments, they control mobility, they control the geography. And when that gets stripped, that's when things start to unravel and native people lose their lands, whether that's in the Ohio Valley in the 1790s or Chicago in the 1830s um, or farther west in in the late 19th century. Right. But at every stage of the game, there is an environmental component to how the U.S. pries native people from their lands, strips them of their power and and basically kind of removes that environmental sovereignty from the equation. Um, and last, I mean, I, this book just came out, so I don't want to put this pressure on you, but obviously oh, no. <laughs> there's one right around the corner. No, what are you, what are you working? What are you working on next? What should we be looking forward to? Yeah. Um, no, I have, I have an idea in the works. It's early on, right? So don't hold me to any of this, <laughs> okay, but, okay. um, but in my mind, I am calling it a renegade's history of the revolutionary frontier. Um, so I got to this project a little bit through the Chicago project because some of these fur traders in the early American um, time frame, so like the, the turn of the century um, around 1800, some of the first fur traders that come to Chicago as Anglo speakers are fleeing the Ohio country. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're fleeing the Ohio country because they were living amongst native people there. Uh, so people like John Kinsey, right, had lived with the the indigenous resistance movement in the Ohio country up until 1794 when the Americans um, win the Battle of Fallen Timbers. Um, and so Kinsey was kind of a, a lens into this, but but there's a whole slew of these people, as I've started to look into it, who unexpectedly are white or mixed race, but side with the Native Americans during the Revolutionary War and its aftermath on the frontier. And so my idea for this second project is to trace the history, the 
personal histories of these individuals, figure out what is making them tick. What is actually motivating them as white so-called renegades to cross racial and cultural lines and in some cases fight alongside native people against the new United States. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, the trajectory of all these guys is really fascinating. Some of them, and I shouldn't say guys, some of these women uh, also factor in prominently. So there's a handful I've identified at least nine people that I think mm-hmm. will make a kind of compelling group story here. Um, some of these people never really um, make amends with the U.S. after the American state conquers the Midwest and they flee to Canada or they flee across the Mississippi with native kin. Um, some of them kind of switch sides yet again and go to work for the U.S. government as interpreters or as Indian agents in later life. Um, some of them seem to kind of fit somewhere in the middle, like John Kinsey, right, who is this kind of cagey, um, self-serving fur trader at Chicago who ends up being called, you know, the white founder of the city, even though that maybe you know, um, a kind of antiquated um, view of him. But, but in any case, all of these people kind of offer a compelling caveat to this story of frontier violence on, during the revolution. Um, and, and the idea that this is somehow a kind of um, full-on you know, war between indigenous people and white colonists that want to eradicate native people. You know, there's clearly exceptions to that rule. And these renegades offer a window into rethinking that Mm. Um, and, and examining the people that really didn't necessarily want to see indigenous lifeways go away or their indigenous relations go away or their indigenous kin driven off. Um, There are still those people that are kind of challenging that racial exclusion even on the revolutionary frontier and even in its aftermath um, all the way up to the kind of the era of removal. Well, it sounds fascinating. And it sounds yeah. really interesting. So yeah, if you could get started on that, that'd be great. Yeah, exactly. Right. I better get right <laughs> on it. So uh, no, that's the plan. I mean, that's, we'll see how long it takes, but that'll be, uh, it's, a, it's a second project that has gotten me just as excited already mm-hmm. as, as this first project. And in ways, you know, I think, the first project was was all about place, and it's about this kind of enigmatic place that is really hard to pin down for Europeans. The second project is going to be very people focused, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, but again, kind of this this very amorphous, hard to pin down group of individuals. Um, that's yeah, that's the direction I'm headed anyway. So, great. Cool. Well, uh, thank you so much for this conversation. This has been incredible. Great, great. Well, thanks so much. We'll see you both later at some point. I'll hopefully see you both in person. Yes, yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs>